What a great way to start. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Mandy, Amanda, Kylie, thanks for being back from college to sing for us. Man, what a good, good day uh, to be together. If you are new with us, welcome to Crossroads. My name is Matt Manning, and I am the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, uh, if you're joining us online today, I want to welcome you as well. If whether it's on Facebook or YouTube or Crossroads Live, wherever we broadcast this, we are thankful that you are joining in today. We live in some pretty cool times, don't we? That we can gather together every week, regardless of where we're at in like literally in the entire world, to come together and to worship Jesus and to lift his name on high and to uh, learn from his word. And so as we get started in his word today, I think it's like just to take a moment uh, for a little bit of celebration. Today, we are finishing the book of Luke. And so we have been uh, going through this book of Luke, kind of show hands in house online. You can just make a comment. How many of you have been here since we started this at the very beginning? Oh yeah, quite a few of you. Yeah, in case you're here today and you're like, I don't even know when that was. Like, like I'm trying to think if I was here. Just to give you some context, it was pre-pandemic. It was pre-Matt Manning being senior pastor of Crossroads. We started this all the way back in fall of 2019. And if you're new with us here at Crossroads, we walk through series where we take a topic or a book of the Bible and we look at it for a couple of weeks. And since Luke is like so huge, it's 24 chapters long. What we decided to do is break it up into seasons like a TV show so that we could walk through the whole book together. And it's taken us a little over two years to do. And as we've come into this last season, we've been walking really with uh, Jesus through the eyes of Luke, with Jesus as he's making the march to the cross. And if you were here last week, then you know that we, that we did indeed make it to the cross. And if you were here last week, then, then you experienced alongside all of us as we watched Jesus suffer in agony. And we felt the weight of the sin, of our sin, on our shoulders. And we saw the significance of the cross in our lives. And as part of that sermon, I said that the events of the cross mark one of the most significant events in human history. And this week, a few of you had a little bit of issue with that line, and you said this to me, you wrote emails, and you said this, don't you mean, Matt, that the cross of Jesus is the most significant event, not like one of the most, but the most significant event in the history of the world? And if you wrote that email to me, or those emails, I tried very graciously to tell you that while the cross is significant, it is not the most significant event in the world. See, throughout Jewish history, there was this great promise from God that he would send into the world, all the way from the back of the beginning of the scriptures, that he would send into the world uh, this one to take care of the issues of the world. And the one that was talked about was this, this one called the Messiah or the Christ. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Messiah or Christ or don't know what those means, they both mean the same thing, and they both simply mean the anointed one. The one who comes into the world to save, to free, to redeem. That's what the Messiah or the anointed one means. And so, as we kind of unfold this... As, as this Messiah figure was looked at throughout Jewish history, even today, that the Messiah, for Jewish people, they're looking for a political king, a political ruler. And the thought is, is that this Messiah is going to come down, and they're going to take over rulership of Israel, and that they're going to become king of Israel, and they're going to put out the oppressors who's ever oppressing Israel. So, all the way back in first century, that was Rome. And so the Jewish kind of understanding of Messiah or Christ, as they read the Old Testament, was someone who would come and stand and oppose Rome. That's who the Messiah was, this political king. And in the first century, there were plenty of Messiah-type characters, 
candidates, men willing to risk everything in order to beat Rome, in order to become the king of Israel. And they and their followers, they were considered like rebels, and they were part of like a rebellion, and they would go in, and they would steal from the Roman arsenals, weapon arsons, and, and they would steal the wealth from Rome, and they would take back what they thought that they were theirs. They would cause trouble. Like their whole goal was to take from Caesar and to, to come against the king Caesar. Like it was all very Robin Hoodish uh, kind of view of life in early Israel. And in early Israel, we don't think about this often in, um, in as Christians, but in early in the first century, there was actually 18 Messiah-type candidates before Jesus ever came on, on the scene. And each one of these candidates led rebellions. And if you were a person who was leading a rebellion in Israel under Roman control and you got caught, your penalty was death by crucifixion. And so for 18 of these men who came before, all of them faced the same penalty, death by the cross. In fact, as we look back on Roman history, tens of thousands of people died at the hands of the Romans through crucifixion and only one of them was resurrected. See, the most significant event in the history of the world is not the cross, even though it's significant. The most significant event in the history of the world is the resurrection with Je of Jesus because without the resurrection, the rest of Christianity doesn't make a bit of sense. Like, there's no reason for us to gather here today. If the resurrection didn't happen, you might as well go home. Like, there's nothing here for you. There's no hope in this life or in the next. And so today... As we come to a close, when it comes to the book of Luke, we're bringing our attention to the resurrection and specifically the intent or the meaning that it should have in your life. And so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to pick up the story today. And we're picking up the story on Sunday. This is the first day of the Jewish week. On Friday, Jesus was crucified. He was laid in a tomb. A tomb had the stone rolled over to seal it. There was Roman guards put outside it, so nothing shady would happen. And so now it's Sunday morning, and here's where we pick up the story the way that Luke tells it in chapter 24, starting in verse 1. But on that day, on that first day of the week, Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then on the third day, rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, these names are important, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. <laughs> But these words seemed to them like an idol's tale, a fairy tale, a story, a myth, a legend. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home, marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. 
And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And as they, as they stood still looking sad, one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you like the only visitor in all of Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these last few days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deeds and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, should suffer these things and enter into his own glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him to stay a little bit longer, saying, stay with us, for it's towards evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went into an inn to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them to eat. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight, verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Would you bow with me and pray before we jump into this, Father? We are thankful for your word. And today, Lord, as we come to it, we pray that you would open our eyes like you did these disciples. Lord, that we would feel the impact of the resurrection, that we would see it with our own eyes, that we would know it, Lord, and that it would make a difference in our lives. God, I pray that in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and the, Southern, the seminary that I went to is called Southern. And before I got there in 2003, the previous decade had really marked kind of this, this conservative re kind of rebellion, maybe is right, the right word, this conservative uh, movement back towards uh, its biblical and theological roots as a seminary. See, in the 80s and really into the early 90s, the seminary was under the leadership of people who were beholden to like a progressive or liberal view when it came to the Bible, when it came to Jesus, when it came to the faith. And when I got there, most of this had long passed. Most of this was, that had gone, but there were still people there, professors who, who were able to share the story of those, those early years in the 90s and people who had been students who were now doctrinal students who, who recounted some of the stories. And the stories were quite uh, amazing and they were quite significant. Like, like one of the stories was how, how these professors would come and they would sign the doctrinal belief statements in agreement, but while they signed it, they would have two fingers crossed behind their back so that they could teach whatever they wanted. 
Uh, there were stories in the seminary about, the, about how the seminary had slid and really abandoned their convictions and the fight that it took to, to return it to their theological and biblical roots. There were stories about how the tension at times was so great in the seminary that um, at one point some of the students and professors who were more on the liberal edge of, of theology, that the fight was so fierce that they actually took a mannequin and dressed it like the president who was leading the change, and they lynched him from the colonial three-story building of the library in the middle of the campus for all to see. Um, and as those stories were told, maybe the most significant story in all of this was how New Testament professors would teach soon-to-be pastors that the resurrection of Jesus never happened. What they taught in their classrooms is that after the death of Jesus, the disciples had trouble coping with his death. They had trouble letting go of Jesus' death, and, and that the disciples felt powerfully that Jesus was somehow still with them. And so because of this, there was these stories that, were, that started to come, these legends, these myths that were made to be able to communicate higher experiences and, and spiritual truths in, in these symbolic stories that were more, more concrete. And so you have examples of this, like, like with Peter. And we know Peter, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that Peter, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, finds himself in the courtyard, and he's in this moment of, of whether he should stand up for Jesus or not. And in, this, in this, really, this really intense moment, three times he, he denies Jesus. Three times he denies Jesus. Jesus is crucified, and, and so after Jesus' death, what is taught in these classrooms is is that Peter just knew. I mean, he knew Jesus. And he felt powerfully that Jesus was somehow still with him and, and that Jesus wouldn't want him living a life of guilt and shame. But if Jesus was here, that Jesus would offer him forgiveness. And, and forgiveness is good. And so the legend was born of how Jesus came on the shores of the sea to eat breakfast with Peter. And three times he asked him, Peter, do you love me? And after the third time of Peter saying, yes, Jesus says, you're forgiven. Go and lead my church. A legend made up so that a spiritual truth, a, a higher experience could be communicated when it comes to the truth of forgiveness. And so you come to, to something like Luke chapter 24, and the prevailing thought that was taught is that these stories didn't literally happen. They were just myths or legends, but figuratively they always happen. That literally these, these events never happen, but figuratively we need things like hope and peace and forgiveness and mercy and grace. We need stories that communicate that to us. And so figuratively these stories always happen. And the reason that I share that story with you is because maybe you're here today and that's what you believe. That the post-resurrected Jesus is, is just some legend, a mythological figure that, that, we, that we would be wise to model our lives around. And if you believe that here today, it's, it's totally cool. You're welcome here. You're welcome to believe that, but I just feel it in me that I at least need to let you know this one thing, that the only problem with believing that is that the early church did not teach the resurrection as a mystical or mythological or merely a symbolic event. That the early church taught the resurrection as this historical fact, this historical event that actually happened. And so as we began all the way back two years ago in the fall of 2019, as we entered into the Gospel of Luke, we find that Luke is not just some like random dude off the street, but that Luke is actually this amazing man. That he was from a town called, uh, he was from a town called uh, Antioch, and he wasn't a Jewish person. This is important. He was actually a Greek. 
And the reason that, that this is important that Luke is a Greek is because in Greek thought, if you were a Greek person, if you were raised in the Greek culture, you did not believe in resurrection. Like Plato, the great Greek thinker that we all had to read about in high school or in college, here's what he said when it came to resurrection, or at least the body. He said that the body is the prison or the dungeon of the soul. And for the Greek mind, what Plato taught is that in death, your soul is finally free from the prison that it's lived in. And for the Greek to think that the soul being freed would now come back in a post-resurrected body was, was ugly, like, like it was repulsive to them. And so here you have Luke, who's from the town of Antioch, a Greek, and from history we know that he came to faith in Jesus, that he became a follower of Jesus sometime like in his late teens, early 20s. And, and the history books tell us that he was a disciple of disciples. That means that he didn't actually know Jesus. He never met Jesus. He wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus, but rather he was a disciple of the apostles. And he knew the apostles. He knew people like Matthew and John and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. But the apostle that he was closest with was the apostle Paul. And for years, Luke traveled with the apostle Paul. Now, by trade, Luke was this brilliant man. He was a medical doctor. That's what he did by trade. But by renown, by reputation, he was a historian that he was a renowned historian, not just in like Christian circles and in faith circles, but still today in secular circles, he is a renowned historian. And by passion and calling, he was a missionary. And so Luke has this, this acquaintance in his life named Theophilus. And Theophilus is a Roman official. We know that he's this Roman official. And when you're a Roman official, you have to abide by all the things that Rome, that Caesar says you have to abide by. And one of those things is that Caesar is Lord. That means that Caesar has some deity uh, attributes to him. That Caesar is Lord and Caesar is king. And so you have this Theophilus who's an acquaintance to Luke, and he starts hearing about the stories of Jesus. He starts hearing about what Jesus has done. He starts hearing how, how Jesus was killed on the cross and how he resurrected, that, that he's being taught these things. And, and they're starting to fascinate him. They're starting to grab his soul. But for Theophilus to follow Jesus would have cost him everything as a Roman official. It would have cost him his status, his reputation, his job, most likely his wealth. Like, in order to follow Jesus, like Theophilus, he had to know for real. Like, like, this had to be the real deal. It couldn't be some legend. It couldn't be no, some myth. It had to be the real deal. And so Theophilus goes out, and he hires his acquaintance, Luke, and he says, Hey, Luke, I'm going to pay you to put together a story, to put together the investigative reporting to see if these things about Jesus are actually true. If these things that are said about him are, are true, because, because I'm thinking I want to follow him, but I got to know. I got to know that these are real. And so Luke sits down, and he starts interviewing eyewitness after eyewitness in order to give an account to Theophilus to confirm in him the things that he was being taught about Jesus. See, Luke, from the very beginning of this gospel, sets out not to write to like a specific audience, but specifically to one man named Theophilus to help convince him that the things that are happening around Jesus were actually true. See, when it comes to the gospel of Luke, the whole gospel, the whole gospel is filled with stories of eyewitness accounts. The whole, the whole gospel filled with stories of eyewitness accounts that most historians believe that Luke actually interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. That, it, that this is all happening in 60 AD, just 30 years after Jesus' death, that he's investigating this. 
That he went and he talked to the centurion who, who Jesus helped heal the servant. That he talked to Darius or Darius's daughter about, about the healing that happened there. That he went to Peter to hear the stories that, that Peter had to speak and to tell about who Jesus was. That the whole gospel, the whole gospel is built on these eyewitness accounts. And when we get to Luke chapter 24, it's not like Luke all of a sudden turns this off. It's not like all of a sudden he just starts making up these stories. The whole chapter is written from the perspective of eyewitnesses. So in verses 1 through 12, we have the story of these three ladies who, who visit the tomb of Jesus. And they speak about the resurrection. And we're told that they're, they're Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of, of James. Now, while this is so important, is because in Jesus' time, women had a very societal low status. They were very low societally. That if you were a woman in Jesus' time, you were nothing more than a commodity. You were nothing more than a commodity to be bought or traded or sold or bartered for. In fact, if you were a woman of childbearing age and you did not have a man in your life, that there was something really wrong with you. If you're a woman who, who lost your husband and you found yourself as a widow, you'd be outcast in society and left for dead. It's why the teachings in the New Testament were so significant. Because in a society that discounted women as a whole, all of a sudden you have the, the New Testament writers saying, hey, look, when it comes to widows, society says cast them out and let them die, I tell you, to make sure that you're taking care of the widows that you're showing them love. It's why teachings were so significant of, of when Peter writes that men realize that women are co-heirs with you in Jesus. They're on the equal planes here. See, in the first century, in Jesus' lifetime, women were, were nothing more than commodities. And in fact, this went so far that even in the Roman courts and in the Jewish courts, that if you were a woman and you saw something or you needed to testify in behalf or on behalf of someone in court, that you would not be allowed, that your testimony in the court of law, whether that was Roman courts or Jewish courts, was meaningless. It was meaningless. So, if you're making up a legend about Jesus post-resurrection, you would never put a woman in as an eyewitness. I mean, to do so would be a mockery. To do so, you would, you would be laughed at. It would undermine the plausibility of your story and what you were trying to communicate, even if it was a legend or a myth that nobody would take you seriously. You would be foolish to do so. See, the only reason a renowned historian in Jesus' time, would put a woman as the first eyewitness account is because she actually saw and experienced Jesus, like alive and well after the agony of his death. That when it comes to the, the reliability of the resurrection, another, another proof or another example of, of this is in the naming of people. We saw Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. And we also see someone like Cleopas, and in first century, if you were a renowned historian, what you would often do is that you would cite your sources. You would go, hey, look, you don't have to take my word for it. You can go and talk to them yourselves. Go find Mary, the mother of James. She'll tell you the story. Go find Cleopas. He'll, he'll speak to you. That these people will, will speak what they've told to me. And in doing so, at this point, Cleopas, like I said, this is AD 60. This is 30 years after Jesus' death. That Cleopas has been telling this story, this, this, this witnessing for Jesus for the last 30 years that he's a well-known dude. You can go find him. 
But maybe the most convincing argument of the resurrection, at least for me, is found in verse 52. When Luke says these words, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. That's not how Cleopas' story begins. That Cleopas' story begins on Sunday. That it's post-Passover Sabbath. And life is returning kind of to normal, at least as normal as it can be. For Cleopas and his pal that he's traveling with, that Passover will never be the same because it will always be marked. It will always be marked with the memory of Jesus being slaughtered like a lamb by the religious leaders. See, for Cleopas and his pal, they had left everything to follow Jesus. They staked their entire future on his words, their dreams, their hopes, their everything. And now he's gone, like the other 18 Messiah figures that came before him. They leave Jerusalem and they start heading to a town called Emmaus because there's nothing left for them in Jerusalem except memories of a might-have-been Savior and what the world did to him. And as they're walking along, they, they begin to think and, and talk about the dreams and the visions that Jesus had cast for them, the things that they had believed in. Things like, like God's kingdom was coming and that, and that God's will would be on this earth like it is in heaven. And that the wolves would play with lambs and children would, would play with wolves. And that there would be peace, like, like real peace in the world for all men, for all women. It was this beautiful dream that they believed in. And then what happened on the previous Friday shattered all of those dreams. Three days later, there's rumors that, that Jesus is maybe alive, that he's resurrected. That the first rumors come in from these three women, but who would believe them? They're just women. But then one of the disciples goes and checks it out for himself. But for Cleo and his pal, they just remained rumors because like all of us, who's ever seen a dead guy walk out of a grave? See, up until this point, Cleopas' story is a picture of total despair. And so the question that we have to ask is this, is what happened to these guys? That they went from total despair <laughs> to worshiping Jesus as God and blessing God every day in the temple. Like, like what happened? Was it simply some fairy tale? No. Was it a myth? No. Was it some belief that, that Jesus is like this great mythological figure that we need to model our lives after? Like, that changed everything. Absolutely not. What changed it for them is they actually saw and experienced Jesus. See, the way Cleo tells it, it's like this, that they're on this walk, walking to Emmaus, and the stranger comes up, and the stranger starts talking to him, and, and he starts asking him questions about what's going on, and Cleophas looks and goes, man, are you like the only dude ever alive who didn't know what happened in Jerusalem this weekend? Like Jesus, this guy who, who many people, myself included, pinned all of our hopes on, like he was the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Like he was our everything. And he was crucified this weekend. Have you not heard the story? And as Cleopas and his buddy are, are sharing this with the stranger, the stranger can hear how disheartened and he can hear their disbelief in their voice. And the stranger does something interesting. He, he actually begins to chide them. He says, you fool. Did you not know that the Christ had to come and suffer these things so that he might enter into his glory? Like, isn't that what all of the Old Testament is about? The church goes, isn't that what it is? I mean, go back to Genesis chapter 3, 
when all this Messiah talk started. Isn't it say in, in Genesis chapter 3 that the heel of the Messiah will be bruised? That is to say that he'll incur injury, but the head of the serpent, the personification of Egypt, it'll be crushed. Or how about Isaiah 53 that speaks about the iniquities of man being placed on the shoulders of the Messiah and that he'll die, that he'll be beaten and scourged because of those sins. I mean, isn't the whole Old Testament about this? Like, did you guys miss that? And as Cleopas and his pal are fascinated with the reality that, that maybe they did, in fact, miss something. And the sun starts coming in, they're closing down the day, and so they find a place to sit, and they get a place to eat, and as they start eating, suddenly, verse 31, their eyes were opened. Luke uses this phrase, and it's not by accident. In the Septuagint, our Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, this is the exact same phrase that we find in Genesis chapter 3. If you don't know the story, Genesis chapter 3 is where Adam and Eve are hanging out in the garden doing the things that God tells them to do. The serpent comes slithering in and says, hey, don't you want to be like God? And Eve says, yeah, sure, we'd love to do that. He says, go over and eat this tree. So she walks over to the forbidden tree, grabs the forbidden fruit. She eats of it, says, hey, this is pretty good. Adam, honey, you want a piece? He goes, yep. He eats it. And all of a sudden, the scripture says their eyes were opened, that they saw as God saw. And they watched sin and pain and death and all of their allies march into the world. That humanity was over. So now, in Luke chapter 24, you have two people of God, just like in Genesis chapter 3. You have two people of God, and they're sitting there with this stranger, and they're eating with him. And all of a sudden, Luke tells us, just like Genesis chapter 3, their eyes were opened. Just like in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, all of a sudden they were able to see as God saw, and this time they didn't see death and sin and pain and agony marching into the world. This time they see Jesus. They see that the stranger that they're, that they're sitting with, this stranger with these newly eyes, are alive and that they're actually eating with him. And it's the convincing proof, the once-dashed hopes that they had are now alive. They come roaring back to life. See, the resurrection, the resurrection was the earth-shattering event that opened the eyes, that opened these guys' eyes to the validity of everything that Jesus taught and the truths that they had bet their entire lives on, that it changed everything for them. See, when it comes to the early church, they didn't teach the resurrection as some myth. They didn't teach the resurrection as some, as some mythical story or some legend to be told of, of higher truths. The early church treated the resurrection of Jesus like an impossible to, to, to dismiss fact. They saw Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They embraced Jesus. They touched Jesus. That was the fact. Now, we all know how facts work, right? that I can take this tissue that I have and I can hold it out and I can drop it and now we are all witnesses to the fact that this tissue succumbed to gravity and fell to the floor, right? That we are all eyewitnesses to that reality. Now, as this tissue fell to the floor and as you were experiencing that reality, you might not like it that the tissue fell to the floor. You may wish that you had never seen this tissue fall to the floor 
But the fact of the matter is, is that you did in fact see the tissue fall to the floor and you have to accept that reality. But here's the deal. Our culture doesn't really like to work like that, does it? That when it comes to our society, we like more of like a Facebook model where it's all about the likes and the dislikes, right? Thumbs up, thumbs down. See, in our society, the way that people decide whether or not something is true, whether that's a book that they read or a blog or a website or social media, you name it, the way that people decide whether something is true or not is they'll say, I like it or I don't like it. Thumbs up or thumbs down. And maybe you're here today and you say, look, I can't believe in Jesus because I don't like what the Bible has to say about name your topic. That I can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because name your objection. A funny thing's kind of happened in the last 15 years since I've been pastor at this church. That when I first started at this church, um, people would become so offended when we talked about money. Like, you know, hold the fence, like talking about money. People would be so enraged that we talked about money. In fact, in my early years here at Crossroads, I remember having a conversation about whether or not we should still speak about money in the church. Like that's how offensive people felt it. The funny thing is, is now 15 years later, nobody cares if we talk about money. In fact, we've had so many requests to, to have asking about what the Bible has to say about money that we're actually doing a series in January about money. Now, if I want to offend you, I just talk about how the Bible talks about your sex life. That's pretty offensive to most people. Or if I really want to throw gasoline on the fire, I just talk about how your faith intersects with your politics. And how if you were a Democrat four years ago, you should have been praying for Trump. And if you're a Republican now, you should be playing, praying for Biden and not some impeccatory prayers like he falls off the stage and dies, but like legitimate prayers that he should lead this country well. Like, oh my gosh, call the fire department, right? So if that's you today, here's my question. Here's my question. Are you saying that there are parts of the Bible that you don't like, so therefore you can't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? Are you saying that because there's parts of the Bible that offend you or parts of the Bible that you don't like, therefore you can't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? See, every part of the Bible is important. But for a moment, I'm just going to ask you to put away the moral teachings, the do's and don'ts, the stuff that offends you. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then, then you're going to have to deal with all that eventually. You're going, to, you're going to have to deal with all that. Jesus spoke about the Bible like it was something that we should take seriously, but just for a moment, just put all that to the side. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, that you can treat the Bible like an interesting collection of stories. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you've got nothing to worry about. This is all meaningless. If Jesus wasn't, uh, wasn't raised from the dead, then all of our scriptures, you don't even have to sweat it. You don't even have to care what it has to say. And if you're here today, the fact of the matter is there's a guy in the scriptures that is just like you. He's just like you. That he was so offended by the things of Jesus. He was, he was so just bent out of shape because of what Christianity taught, that he made it his life goal to go and to persecute, to execute, to kill Christians. In fact, when this guy walked in to a town, the Christians would run, scared for their lives. And then one day, this guy has an experience. He comes face to face with the undeniable fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
and his life was turned totally upside down. It no longer mattered what offended him. What he used to believe didn't matter anymore. The resurrection was true. And because of it, he, he fully committed his life, his mind, his soul, his strength to following Jesus and his teachings. See, the fact of the resurrection for so many people can be so annoying, can't it? Because what the undeniable event does is it backs every single one of us into a corner and it makes it clear that the historical truth does not care about what offends you. It does not care about what you like or dislike. It comes down to this one thing. Are you willing to accept the facts of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection? Are you willing to accept the fact of the eyewitness accounts? And if so, what do you do with that in your life? Because the reality is the resurrection of Jesus is too big to put into a small box that you're gonna deal with later. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant events in the world's history. It's what convinced the early Christ followers, the early Jesus followers, and those who did not follow him, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. See, anyone can make outrageous claims, can't they? Anybody can make outrageous claims. But when Jesus rose from the dead, that event convinced people who had abandoned him and people who were hostile toward him to repent and to believe. And here's the really cool thing. For the last 2,000 years, the resurrection has been convincing people ever since. So if you're here today and you're close to embracing the life-changing truth of the resurrection and how that decision impacts you, I'd like to pray for you right now. Would you bow your head with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we're grateful for the last couple of years being able to come face to face with Jesus, to see him through the eyewitness accounts of Luke's gospel. God, I thank you for people like Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, Cleopas, the centurion, Jairus, his daughter, Peter and Mark. Lord, the men and women who told of their stories so that we might 2,000 years later see Jesus. And so, Father, today I pray. I pray that the claims of the resurrection would not fall on deaf ears, but, Lord, that you would open our eyes like you did for Cleopas, that you would open our eyes to see you. And, Lord, that we wouldn't just believe that, that you're some mythological figure that, that we model our lives around, but that we would know that you are real. So, Father, I pray for those of us who've been walking with you for a long time. Lord, that the resurrection wouldn't be just something that we gloss over, but, Lord, that we would realize the significance of it in our lives and in this world, and that we would proclaim it. And, Father, I pray for those here, Lord, who do not yet know you, who have, who have staked their dreams and their hopes their entire lives on something in this world. And Lord, for many of us, we go down that road and, and we realize how meaningless that all is. 
Lord, I pray that as you whisper to their souls today, Lord, that they would sense you, that they would know that you're real. And Lord, that this resurrection would convince them. And Lord, that they would find repentance and they would believe, crying out to you, Lord and Savior. God, be with us as we continue in our time together. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If God is speaking to you, if you're getting close to embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd encourage you simply to text the word Jesus to 720-513-1933. That as we gather together, we celebrate communion that this is the gospel, this is the good news. This is the picture of Jesus' perfect life being hung on the cross like a lamb, his body being broken for our sins, his blood being poured out so that we might have life. And the reason that we celebrate today is not simply because the cross happened, but because Jesus three days later walked out of the grave proving he is who he says he is. And so in celebration today, we remember our savior and the real reality of the cross and his body being broken for us. And we remember and celebrate the things that we've been taught concerning Jesus, that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sin and for mine. And in great joy, like Cleopas and his pal, we come together worshiping Jesus as God and giving blessing to God continually, and so we sing. And so I'm going to invite you all to stand as we sing together online. You can find a posture of worship where you can worship God. If you need prayer at any time online, click the button. In-house, just make your way over to the prayer banner. We would love to pray for you, but let's sing together.